Good morning. Why don't you stand? Let's stand together, hear from God's word from Psalm 31. Be encouraged with this. It says, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. For his name's sake, he saves us. For his name's sake, he keeps us. For his name's sake, he gathers us here today. So for his name's sake, let us sing out to the one who saves. Oh God, sing with me. Oh God who set us free from our captivity, your hand is strong to save. You split the raging sea, you crush our enemies, your hand is strong to save. Sing to the Lord. The Lord our God is my Yeah. 
Praise the Lord. May we rest in his strength for us today. You can be seated. Welcome. Welcome to this gathering of Desert Springs Church. My name is Drew. I'm the music pastor here. And we call it a gathering. It is an assembly. That is what a church is, is when we assemble together. But we also sometimes refer to it as a worship service. And so when we think of it in that way, I want you to think of how you are called here, you are assembled to serve. So the Lord has you here, not just for yourself. You're actually here for others. So consider how you would serve others today, how you would sing for others, how you would pray for others, how you would greet others, maybe welcome others, and even invite others over to your house or out for lunch. Let us be busy serving others today. Well, the room looks a little different today. I don't know if you guys noticed. Yeah. Well, the Lord in his kindness, he has, uh, yeah, the, due to the new uh, wording in the public health order this past week, uh, the elders decided that we didn't need to require social distancing anymore. So uh, we're excited to have no more ropes, no more RSVPs, uh, no more check-in, and I'm seeing a lot of nodding heads and agreements and affirmations. So I know we're all thankful for that. So as we, as we, Lord willing, round third on this COVID saga, we'll just continue to wear a mask, continue to, uh, to prefer one another, to be gracious to one another, uh, because not everybody feels the same way about this, and, and that's okay. We can be gracious with one another. We'll also have the youth room and the West Wing set up for distancing if you or others that you know would be more comfortable there. Um, you can also uh, still utilize that for your little kiddos uh, with families with young kids as we, Lord willing, get childcare up and running uh, in the next few weeks. So let's, uh, let's give thanks. Let's be thankful this morning uh, and give thanks in our hearts to God and in prayer now. So let's pray together. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we come to you needy and broken. And we come to you because you are the giver and the mender. Some of us come seasick and sunburnt from the storms of life. You are our anchor. You are our hope. We want to kiss the wave that throws us against the rock of ages. We know that all things work together for our good, but not all things are good. There is present in this room real pain real loss, real sin that affects every one of us. We also know that none of this can separate us from the love of Christ. We know that you use these trials to refine us into Christ-likeness and define us as your children, chosen before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before you. So now we lift our feeble songs, our weak voices, tired voices to you. Help us, hold us, almighty, unchanging Father, we ask in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Let's stand again to hear from God's word. From 2 Corinthians. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, said, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. 
We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. What glorious truth and assurance. Let us affirm it now together as we sing. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flow be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy lost demands. Could my zeal no respite? my tears forever flow all for sin good not as home thou must save and now nothing in my hand I bring simply Look to 
descended, took on flesh to ransom us. Come behold the wondrous mystery, be the is your unwavering hope. Say amen. You can be seated. Please pray with me. Mighty Father, we thank you and we call on your name. We glory in you, our God and our strength. You have told us to seek your presence continually and we do that now. You have told us to remember your wondrous works that you have done, and we do that now. You are God, and there is none like you. You never promise that which you do not keep. You never fail. 
regardless of how small and insignificant we might feel. You have a people purchased by the blood of your son and you will bring them to glory. Lord, we have sinned and we have failed. We have doubted this week. We have not been all who we are in Christ. We have loved the world and ignored your word. We've forgotten you by thinking so much of ourselves. Father, please forgive us. Just as you have plucked Israel from the hand of Egypt, just as you rescued Joseph from slavery, just as you snatched Paul on the road to Damascus, you have saved us. You have redeemed us. You have called us. You have purchased us, predestined us, foreknew us, justified us, and you will glorify us. We are yours, and all of our hope is in you and you alone. We believe that we will stand in the day of judgment only, only because of your precious son. He has done all of this for us, and even more. He has given his life in exchange for ours. Oh, great God, hallelujah, hallelujah. You are grace unmeasured, and you are love untold. And now, Lord, we desire this good news of your salvation to extend through all the earth. Will you raise up for yourself mighty men of the gospel who love you above all else, men who love their wives as Christ loved the church, that is, with great sacrifice and great tenderness. Men who will shepherd and lead their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Men who will delight in your word and are guided by your Holy Spirit. Father, we pray for the ministries that equip men for effective ministry and spiritual growth. We thank you, Lord, for the Gospel Men's Seminars. They have been a timely challenge and a sweet encouragement to me and to so many others. Father, I give you thanks and praise for the men's huddle groups that faithfully, Lord, week in and week out, they build and grow men after your own heart. And for the men that are dedicated to faithful and consistent one-on-one -on -one discipleship and mentorship, we thank you, Lord, for the meetings, the coffees, the lunches, the phone calls, the emails, and the texts. In all of this, be glorified. And will you build an army of men united in gospel truth, men full of courage and boldness, Lord, to jump into the deep mud of life's challenges, to speak honestly about sin and about failure, to seek forgiveness and restoration. May you bless and fortify these ministries for your glory. As for all of us this morning, bring us together under the banner of Christ. Bring us together for your name's sake. Let your people be joined one to another in true Christian love so that the world might know that we are your people and you are our God. Please bring great unity in our midst so that we might be one church of one mind and of one purpose, which is to delight in you and your glory and for the good of all. Tender Father, will you now calm our minds, prepare our hearts. May your word change us, wash us, shape us, refine us. May it shatter our, our misconceptions about you. Would you reconstruct our values? Would you make us different? Would you make us a truly transformed people? Lord, make us less and you more. And do this all for the glorious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Mm -hmm.
Let us stand now to rehearse the promises of God and to resolve to trust them.
Yes, Lord, we thank you for a sure and certain word. We thank you that not one of your promises has failed. Not one of your promises will ever fall short of your perfect execution of just what you have intended and just what you have communicated to us. We thank you for that. We thank you for a sure word, and we thank you for a glorious and sure plan, a plan that in your providence has involved us. We pray it would be so savingly. We pray it would be so increasingly so, Lord. May we recognize more and more your good, sure purposes for us, both now and in eternity. So show us that today from your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. And we are in Galatians 3 again today. Galatians chapter 3. We come to a passage in our study of Galatians today. A passage that requires a deep dive. A deep dive. A passage which presumes an interest in historical details in Old Testament theological details. Now those who are really into Star Wars have likely seen an online graphic, a a chart of Star Wars events. It's a timeline. There are different versions of these, some in greater or lesser detail, depending on how deep in the Star Wars rabbit hole you want to go. But if you want to keep straight the characters, the movies, the events, you got to pull one of these things up at some point. Now, some of you have never seen one of those charts, and you don't care to know that even such things exist. And maybe if you've watched any of the Star Wars movies, you've watched it only for the special effects or for the cuteness of Ewoks or because your spouse made you. Uh, or, or, or because you can get into the drama of a self-contained story, a self-contained movie. And, and maybe a friend or a spouse or one of your kids tried to show you at one point one of these timeline charts. Uh, or maybe they just had to at some point explain to you that episodes 4, 5, and 6 actually come first before episodes one, two, and three, and some of you, you're just short-circuiting right now hearing that. What are you talking about? Who cares, you say? What's the point? Well, in the middle of Galatians 3, it's as if Paul pulls out a chart. It's as if he pulls up one of those timelines. And he goes a little deeper than many of us would have asked him to take us. He says, this event happened before that event, and it makes all the difference in the world. What Paul teaches really does matter here, but it's probably not immediately obvious to us that it matters. John Piper introduced this passage to his church back in 1983 like this. He said, this text has nothing in it that is immediately practical. If you live your life on the basis of spiritual pet pills that give an immediate emotional charge and specific practical guidance, then you'll have a hard time with this sermon. 
But if you live your life on the basis of an ever-deepening understanding of the ways of God in Scripture, you will relish Paul's theology in these verses. He went on to say, There are profound implications for practice here, but to see and experience them requires a process of thought. The implications for what we should be and do do not lie on the surface. But I hope and pray, Piper says, that we are not so immature and impatient that we think texts like these are useless. I hope we can see that when texts like these take root in our understanding, we become like sturdy trees planted by streams of water. Well, to that I say amen, and I hope that you do too. I hope you'll join me today in coming to God's word with faith and expectancy and a confidence that it is God's word and God's word for us today. And it's God's word that feeds us. And sometimes he feeds us with foods and ingredients that we didn't at first know that we needed. So look down in your Bibles to Galatians 3, verse 15. Paul writes, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring would come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scriptures imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. We'll stop there. That's our passage for this week. Remember that I said last week that Paul uses significant repetition, especially in this part in Galatians, to make his point. And he really keeps making the same point over and over, only in slightly different ways. He does have slightly different arguments, different approaches, different Old Testament bases for his argument, but they all serve the same point. And that same single point relates to a big problem on the ground in these Galatian churches. Remember, Paul picked up his pen to write Galatians, as we call it, because there was a problem on the other side. Since he had been there with these new Christians, false teachers had come to town with a modified gospel. 
which Paul said back in chapter 1, a modified gospel is no gospel at all. It's a distorted gospel, and it's damnable. This modified gospel retained all the basic elements of the true gospel that Paul taught them. Jesus, faith, the cross, grace. The false teachers had a place for all these good things. But they insisted also on keeping Old Testament laws as part of the gospel, as part of the basis for acceptance with God. And so they required especially circumcision for male Gentiles and the following of the food laws, like not eating pork or shellfish. Well, Paul says, not only have those laws ceased to be required now that Jesus the Messiah has come, but his point now, there has never been a basis for salvation in those laws. Those laws were never instrumental for salvation, never to begin with. You see, even in Old Testament, Old Testament days, when those things were required of Israel, they didn't save. They pointed to the need of salvation, as Paul will argue in our passage. So to require those laws of the old covenant, like circumcision and the food laws, as a gospel matter, not only overlooks the fact that these things have been shed in the coming of Christ, but they also miss that salvation was never according to works to begin with. Salvation could never be according to works as Paul said in last week's text, because we can never do enough works. Because that system is an all-in system, and so we all fail. That was last week. And this week, his point is that salvation can never be according to works or according to the Old Testament laws because the covenant that God made with Abraham was so clearly an all-grace kind of covenant, and it came before those laws that we got with Moses. So fundamental to our passage are two covenants, two covenants that are contrasted in their purpose and their timing. You may not be aware that the Bible has covenants. You may not know about Abraham. You may have heard of Moses, but you only know him from the Ten Commandments movies. Well, there's an Abrahamic covenant that's found in the book of Genesis, and we'll talk about it today. And in our passage, Paul just calls that the promise. And then there is a Mosaic covenant, a covenant that God made with the Israelites through the prophet Moses, that's found in the book of Exodus, and in our passage, Paul just calls that the law, the promise and the law. Again, if those categories are all brand new to you, no worry, because I'm going to try to explain them slowly and repeatedly, and hopefully you'll get them by the end of our time. And if they're new or fuzzy to you, and you think, what's the point, 
Just keep in mind that at one point, these Galatian Christians were in the same shoes that you might be in today. In other words, the relevance of Old Testament details, in Paul's mind, shouldn't be reserved for good Jewish boys and girls who've learned these things in Sabbath school. The relevance of Old Testament details, like what God said in the days of Abraham and Moses, and which one came first, those details are not reserved for bookish types who just like history and data. No, the Galatians were not necessarily bookish, and they were certainly not Jews. They were Gentiles. And Paul apparently had told them some Old Testament details related to the gospel such that when they got it wrong later on, he could remind them of what he taught them of the Old Testament. It wasn't that long ago that Andy Stanley, a pastor in Atlanta, said we need to detach or unhitch this Jesus thing from the Old Testament. Well, not only is that profoundly stupid, it's profoundly impossible. And Paul sure didn't think you should do that. Paul taught Gentile new Christians Old Testament laws and covenants because he thought it would help them in their Christian life. So let's go for it. Okay, there are two main headings that I have for us of four verses each. The first is the superiority of the promise. Verses 15 to 18, the superiority of the promise. You've got four verses in verses 15 to 18, and really with each verse, Paul makes a separate point which contributes to a whole argument. So bear with me. We're going to go through each of these verses, and I've got a C word that I'm going to suggest for each verse. Four C words, four subpoints. With verse 15, let's consider how covenants work. How covenants work. Paul says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant or contract or will, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Paul begins with an example from the world of secular contract law. And he likely has in mind here wills, as in a, a last will in testament, as we call them today. And how do wills work? Well, once they're drawn up, that's it. That's the will. They're not written in pencil. They're not put on an etch-a-sketch. They're copied. A copy gets filed away, at least until it's time to pull it out and enact it. I'm no lawyer, but before this service, I consulted with Matt Danner, Esquire, and he said, as I suspected is the case, that if you have a will drawn up and you decide to modify it later on, it's not really a modified will. You draw up a whole new will. You need new signatures on new pieces of paper. It's not like lawyers can pull out the old will, scribble some handwritten additions or addendums or changes to it, and then file it away, maybe put their initials next to it. No, Matt told me that actually revokes the will if you were to scribble your changes over top of a hard copy. 
Well, Paul's point isn't about changes or modifications that could or couldn't happen. His point is, is the inviolable nature of, of the will, of, of contracts, once they are ratified, once they are legal. They're not written in pencil. They're, they're not written with disappearing ink. The words are down and clear and printed, and they're legally binding And that will will be enacted at someone's death. And the will can't be annulled or added to before or after someone dies. It can't be changed or canceled. And here's Paul's point with this illustration that if human-made wills and contracts are binding and irrevocable and unchanging, then how much more sure is it and more settled is it and more certain is it when God makes a covenant, a contract, or a will? It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. You, you already know this to be true. Contracts are legal, and kids can dispute the inheritance, but if dad had the lawyer write it clear enough, it's clear enough, and that settles it. Now, you can imagine how this would seem to play right into the hands of the false teachers in Galatia, because they might say, ha, that's exactly our point, Paul. God made a covenant with Moses and gave him a law. And that law is still in force. Who are you to say otherwise? We're still under that law and that covenant. And that's fine and good reasoning, but Paul intends to make that point not about the Mosaic covenant, but about the Abrahamic covenant. You see, verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham. He's talking about covenant keeping God behind the Abrahamic covenant. Again, remember he's contrasting two covenants, the covenant made with Abraham and the covenant made with Moses. And what he calls those two covenants really does matter. He calls one the promise, the gift, the one of grace. And he calls the other the law. It's threatening, it's binding, it tells you what to do, and it means you must do it. But the promise, the the pledge, the, the covenant about grace and inheritance and blessing, that isn't dismissed or annulled or canceled out or altered by a later covenant. The order matters. That's his point in verse 17. So skip to verse 17. We'll get, we'll get to 16 in a second here. But in verse 17, he's completing the thought that he started in verse 15. We could call this how the chronology matters. So it's how the covenants work, how covenants in general work. Now verse 17, how the chronology matters. He says, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, doesn't annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. The covenant that God 
made with Abraham starts in Genesis 12 and gets repeated and expanded in almost every chapter through to Genesis 22. Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 are the key chapters, but really the same things are repeated in almost every chapter in that section. Now the covenant that God made with the Israelites through the prophet Moses, that's found in Exodus 20 in following, and that happened 430 years after, a long time after. Again, Paul's saying, the when matters. The timing counts. The chronology is important. The promises made to Abraham of inheritance and blessing and being a blessing to the nations, those promises of grace, those promises that have this distinct feature as God vocalizes them to Moses, or sorry, to Abraham, and keeps saying, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this, I will make of you, I will give you, I will bless you, I will bless the nations through you. That's different than the covenant that God made through Moses at Mount Sinai, which had some gracious elements to it, yes, but it's rightly called law in our passage. And God keeps repeating there, do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. Don't do this and you will die. The order of those covenants matters. The, the later law didn't cancel out the promise of God's self-initiating grace. Now Jews in the first century days, in Paul's day, they had elevated the law of Moses really above everything else in the Old Testament. So they had sayings like, more Torah, more life. More law, more Life. That's how you live. You get more law. Give more attention to law. Get more law obedience under your belt. More life. They had flattened out the chronology of the Old Testament, making the Mosaic law the plumb line or the everything. And so if you ask the average Jew or even the average Jewish scholar in Paul's day, how did David please God? They would have said the law. And if you said, well, how did Moses please God? They would have said the law. And you would have said, fine, good enough. But how did Abraham please God? They would have said the law. And then if you said, but the law came with Moses in Exodus 20 and following, what about Abraham, which was 430 years before? And they would say, I don't know. Abraham must have been given a prior, private revelation of the law because he obeyed God. He must have had the law. That's how you honor God, the law. And if you said, wait a minute, what about Abel? Before he was killed by his brother, how did he please God? He was way before Abraham. He must have had the law. That's how you please God. 
Well, Paul may have believed that very thing before his conversion to Christ, but he surely doesn't believe it now. He insists that the chronology matters. And so he gets out his Star Wars timeline and he says, you see how Rogue One came before a new hope? It matters. And more important than getting your Star Wars chronology right is that you get the plan of God right so that you know that his promises are sure, so that you know that your salvation is Bank, solid, dependable. Back to verse 16. His point there is how Christ is central to the Abrahamic covenant. Christ is central. He says the promises made to Abraham and to his his offspring, with that it doesn't say and to offsprings, plural, but it refers to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Well, you can find that language of God's promises to Abraham and his offspring. Again, Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 and 22. God promised to Abraham an offspring, a seed, a nation. He said that, his people, his offspring, his seed, would be like the sand of the sea or like the stars of the sky. In other words, many, innumerable. Now, Paul knows that. He knows that the word offspring is one of those singular collective words, right? Offspring is like the word team. It's a singular word, but it refers to many Right? Multiple people on a team. And so like the word seed, it's a singular word, but if I said, I have seed in my hand, you probably wouldn't think there's one seed, but multiple seeds, plural. That's how the word works, though. You say seed, and it can mean seeds. Of course Paul knows that, and of course that's what God was promising to Abraham back in those key chapters of Genesis. But Paul is saying there's a subtle, finer point that you can overlook. That seed can be singular, as that offspring can be singular. In Genesis 22, God seems to do that. It's singular and it's plural in Genesis 22. And he says that there's a place for emphasizing the singularity of the seed of Abraham because there is one that matters most. There is one seed that matters most. There is one of Abraham's offspring that is essential, crucial, and central. There is one through whom the promises get enacted and fulfilled. Yes, the promises come to a multitude of Abraham's offspring, and even offspring through faith, so not just his physical offspring. But those promises, though they come to a multitude, they come through one, Christ, the Messiah. This idea of the seed and the offspring is such a big deal in God's word, not just with the Abrahamic covenant. Think of what we call the first gospel in Genesis 3, 15. God said that through the seed or offspring of the woman, 
there would come the reverse of the curse and the crush of the serpent's head. And so, God's people should be watching for this seed, this offspring to come who will defeat Satan. In Genesis 12 to 22, well, we get some specificity. It's going to be a seed from Abraham's seed. It's going to be a son of Abraham. You go to 2 Samuel 7, and we learn there that this one to come is going to be a son of David. One of his offspring or seed will one day rule forever on the throne of God. So you're looking for a seed of the woman, a seed of Abraham, a seed of David. And you flip to the New Testament, and our New Testaments begin with Matthew 1.1. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew knew what he was doing when he began telling us the Jesus story. There's a lot that came before, and it matters. Christ is central. And then look at verse 18. Here we see how the promise comes to us. That's our fourth C word, how the promise comes to us. If the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. The covenant that God made through Moses on Mount Sinai, as I said, had the repetition of do this and live. Here's the law, do this and live. And Paul makes the point in 2 Corinthians 3, you might want to look up that later on, that the circumstances surrounding the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, they signaled for us the tone and the tenor of that whole covenant. That covenant that Paul calls in 2 Corinthians 3, a ministry of death. Ministry of death, that's a little harsh. Well, that's what he calls it. And he points out that the law back then was written on tablets of stone. It was carved into stone outside of people, not hearts, outside of them, on stone. That's the ministry of death. That's what it did. That's what it communicated. Trouble. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, remember how they couldn't look at Moses' face? I mean, it was just like reflected divine glory, and they couldn't even look at Moses' face. And the whole thing signaled, you can't come near. Don't touch the mountain or you die. If you touch the mountain, if one of your animals touches the mountain while God touches down upon it, you die. The whole Mosaic covenant signaled threat and trouble and unapproachable glory. As Luther said, it thundered and it lightninged. But the promises of God made to Abraham... Again, as I said, promises of inheritance and blessing and grace and blessing flowing to the nations and the undoing of the curse. God kept saying to to Abraham, I will, I will do it. I will make of you. I will do this. And that's epitomized in Genesis 15 where we actually find the covenant ceremony in the Abrahamic covenant. 
If you know that story, you can look it up later. Genesis 15, there, God puts Abraham to sleep. That's going to be his part in this covenant ceremony. You take a nap. You lay there like an unconscious baby, and I'll make the covenant. And so God passes through the animal carcasses to symbolize himself taking on the full responsibility of the covenant conditions. You see, in those days when two guys agreed on something and made covenant together, they would kill an animal, separate it into two, and they would walk through it together, articulating the conditions of the covenant, signifying that if I don't live up to my end of the bargain, may I be like this slain animal. Those kind of covenants were two-party covenants. They were bilateral. They each had a party and a responsibility to keep. But in Genesis 15, God does it all while Abraham sleeps. God speaks the terms of the covenant as he walks through. He bears the responsibility. He will fulfill the covenant. Paul's been making really the same point all the way through chapter 3. It's just now that he's tying it to the nature of the Abrahamic covenant. How did the promise of God's grace come to God's people? Well, take it all the way back to Abraham. Did Abraham earn those promises of grace? No. It was a gift. It was grace. He simply believed and it was received. Read Romans 4 later on your own if you want a whole chapter explanation for Abraham believing God as the basis for God's grace in his life. The point is that our salvation doesn't rest upon our keeping of the law because we never keep it. Our salvation rests upon the promises of God, which God always keeps and never breaks. God wants you to know. The Apostle Paul wants you to know. He wanted the Galatians to know deep down within them that their salvation doesn't rest upon them. Not at the beginning, not at the end. It never has been that way. It never will be. The whole thing is outside of you. It originates in God, not you. It's accomplished by God, not you. And it will be brought to completion by God and not by you or me. That's the very nature of the covenant. God could have revealed his promises to us any old way he wanted to. He could have just said, Trust me, I'm God. That's it. He, but he did this thing of communicating his promises in contractual language to let you know. It, it's like it's written up already. It's settled. It's filed away already. I learned a couple weeks ago of some NFL player drafted, I think, in 1993, who had his lawyer draw up in his contract he wanted guaranteed money. How do you word guaranteed money in the clearest and most sure way? He said, um, these things are payable to so-and-so up to and including the end of the world. <laughs> I 
our covenant-keeping God has given us an inheritance that is so sure. It's way more sure than that airtight contract that NFL lawyer came up with. In fact, our inheritance, our benefits don't even kick in until the end of the world. So why then the law? Why the law covenant? Why the Moses thing? Why Mosaic covenant? Well, secondly, the second heading, the subordinate role of the law. There's the superiority of the promise and then the subordinate role of the law in the second half. You see in verse 19, he anticipates this question. In fact, he's been anticipating it. It's been looming, hasn't it? Why the law? Why? Why did God do that? Why the Mosaic Covenant? And Paul answers that on a few different levels in verses 19 to 22. I'd like to start with the most confusing answer he gives so we can get that one out of the way. It's at the end of verse 19 and into verse 20 that Paul gives one reason for the law, and it's not his primary point. That's why I want to get it out of the way. He says it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Now, what the heck does that mean? That's what I thought this week. Let's start with angels. Deuteronomy 33, verse 2, and then in Stephen's sermon in Acts 7, those passages, and maybe some others, but at least those passages hint at the fact that the giving of the Ten Commandments involved angels. You say, I didn't know that was in the story. I didn't see that in the Prince of Egypt. Maybe it was there, maybe it wasn't. I don't know. Whether you knew about it or not, it's there. It's in the Bible, even subtly so. And Paul is referencing it for this point, that the Old Covenant was relayed in multi layers. Not God directly to people, but God through angels, through an intermediary who is Moses. And that's as simple as this point gets. It complex as it is when we first read it. It's as simple as this. With the Mosaic covenant, you got multi-layers. With the Abrahamic covenant, it was direct. It was personal. This, this Abrahamic covenant has to be better, not only because it was earlier, but because it was direct and personal. It didn't involve any intermediaries. That's his point. Now back to the beginning of this section of verse 19. Why then the law? Here's a, a bigger, more important reason. It was added because of transgressions. In other words, it was given to expose our sin, to expose it. Paul says in Romans 3, it's through the law that we get the knowledge of sin. The law says do X, don't do Y, and when we don't do X, and when we do Y, we know that we have crossed the line. 
The reformers like Martin Luther and John Calvin, they understood this stuff very well. They taught it very well. Luther said, the law can do nothing for us except to arouse the conscience. Before the law comes to me, I feel no sin. But when the law comes, sin, death, and hell are revealed to me. The law dispels all self-illusions. It puts the fear of God in a man. Without this fear, there can be no thirst for God's mercy. God accordingly uses the law for a hammer to break up the illusion of self-righteousness that we should despair of our own strength and efforts at self-justification. Amen, Luther. Now, it's a little more complicated than that. John Calvin spoke of three uses of the law. Number one, the number one use I won't even go into, it's civil. Just tuck that away or ignore it. The second use of the law is what we're talking about and what Paul's been referring to most in Galatians so far. But Calvin spoke of a third use of the law that's on the other side of our conversion. Because you might be thinking, if the law means commandments and the law sets us up for Christ but doesn't save, then is there no law whatsoever, no commandments? Well, no, he'll say in Galatians 6, there's a law of Christ now, and he'll give us many commandments, like walk in the Spirit, Galatians 5. Paul has commandments. Paul believes in what Calvin said is the third use of the law, but he also believes in the second use of the law And it's not just Paul or the reformers, but Augustine as well. He said, the law bids us as we try to fulfill its requirements and we become wearied in our weakness under it to know how to ask for help and grace. Now Paul goes even further in Romans to talk about the law as an instrument for exacerbating sin, increasing sin. Romans 5, the law came to increase sin. In Romans 7, he says, I wouldn't have known covetousness, but that was a bad thing, unless the law said don't covet. And then I couldn't help myself. I couldn't stop coveting. It's like kids at the cookie jar. They weren't even interested in a cookie until mom said, I'm walking down the street for a little bit. Don't eat any of the cookies. And then they're transfixed with cookies. Their eyes are spinning about with delicious cookie circles. The law was given not only to expose our sin and make clear our sin and to prove that we're helpless and hopeless, but even to exacerbate our sin, to aggravate our sin. It imprisoned us. That's the language of verse 22 of Galatians 3. The scriptures, and specifically the law part of the scriptures, it imprisoned everything under sin. It imprisoned. It convicts. It locks up. It keeps us locked up. And it makes us long for freedom. The law can't produce any freedom, but it makes us long for freedom pretty darn well. Now, some Christians mistakenly believe that the Old Testament rituals found in the Mosaic Law are pretty sweet. 
They're empowering. They're like Christianity 2.0. There's Christianity, that's the New Testament, but do you want Christian calculus? Well, you gotta get back to the Jewish roots. That's what some people call this movement, the Jewish roots. It's trouble, it's wrong. It doesn't fit with Galatians or Colossians 2 or the whole book of Hebrews. It's not the way Paul read the Old Testament. Now, if you want to partake of Old Testament feasts or you want to obey the Old Testament food restrictions for some reason, for health reasons, what I'm not sure it's that healthy, but that's another matter. Just don't think that it's empowering. Don't think that it's gospel 2.0. Don't think that it's calculus for Christians. It's the old stuff. It's the shadow. And now we live in the age of the substance. And we should always prefer the substance. And we should never get distracted by those old shadows. They've served their purpose. And now Christ has come. You see, verse 19, why then the law? Well, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Paul says the law had its time. The law was good in its day, but the law has served its purpose. It was by nature temporary. It led us to Christ. In Romans 8, Paul can say what God has done in the law, uh, God has done in Christ what the law could not do, he says. He says, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. Under the Old Testament, we all stand condemned. That's settled. In Colossians 2 language, it's like there's been this certificate of guilt and debt that's already been established. But Christ has nailed that to the cross. Having forgiven us all our trespasses, Paul says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You see, God imprisoned us, Old Testament Israel, and anyone who would, like them, find themselves guilty. He imprisoned them under sin for a time so that, you see verse 22, the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. You see how Paul's just stacking up the language of grace? You see how the contrast of systems is here at work as well? He's talking of promise and faith in Jesus Christ given to those who believe. All this is in contrast to any kind of system of law of works, of earning, of doing. Phil Riken, the president of Wheaton College, in his commentary on Galatians, he puts it so well. He says, faith and works operate according to different principles. 
They are two entirely different ways to live, by believing and by doing. If we live by faith, we trust God to justify us through Jesus. On the other hand, if we live by works, we count on our own contribution to make us acceptable to God. But we cannot have it both ways, Riken says. Believing and doing are mutually exclusive. Faith and works, then, are like a man who has one foot on the dock and one foot on his boat, and the boat starts to pull away from the dock. He will have to make a choice, or else he will end up in the water. What will it be for you? What has it been for you? Perhaps for the first time today, you'll give up on any kind of system that has you trying your way to make God appeased, earning your way to him, climbing a ladder, climbing a mountain to get to him even with his assistance. You can't. you got to give up on that system. We talked about that last week. It's not about different paths up one mountain. It's about getting off that mountain and calling in for help. That's the grace system. That's what Jesus came for. That's what the cross is all about. In the language of last week's text, it's Christ bearing the curse for us by becoming a curse so that we might receive the blessing. It's so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who simply believe, simply trust. Would you today just trust? I can't help but think of parenting when I think of this passage. Here, here's an application for us. In addition to the simple application I've been making from the beginning that this passage, Christian, just communicates to you the surety of God's grace, the confidence with which you can have in God's saving plan for you. It's so sure. It's so settled. It's so settled on Christ. But, but I think of parenting as well, that parenting involves rules and discipline of our children and I know it's not just rules and discipline, bear with me, of course it's smiles and love and kisses and fun times and all that, but I want you to consider both the usefulness of rules and discipline and the limits of rules and discipline for your children for their salvation. There are limits. The most behaved boys and girls will not go to heaven because they are behaved. Those who are taught the best of manners, they'll make people smile at the grocery store and at Target when they overhear a little boy say to mom, yes, ma'am. But that won't get them God's smile that will not get them into heaven. It's not of works from top to bottom. It doesn't matter how well they conform to your rules. You've got to know that. There are limits to how rules and discipline work towards our kids' salvation. But there are limits. It's not useless. There is some usefulness of rules and discipline in the salvation of our children. 
as goes the limits of the rules and the discipline, they got to have the gospel. we got to teach them well. We need to discipline them consistently. And we need to keep telling them the gospel from this angle and that angle at this time and that time. Showing them here and there. Explaining it this way and that way with Bible stories and catechisms. And God uses it all. Not just the gospel lessons, but also all those times where you said, we said we weren't going to do this, and you did this, and there are consequences, and God has once again shown you your need for a Savior, hasn't he? Second use of the law. You should find it plenty active in your home. And you should find it pretty active in your own heart as well. Because Christian, that's what led you in to Christ. And, and really, God in his kindness, he keeps showing you your sin, doesn't he? Every time you fail, he once again has shown you your need for a savior. In your failings as a parent, in your failings as a spouse, in your failings here, there, and everywhere. These are marks of need for his grace that his grace more than overcomes amen let's pray lord we thank you for this glorious gospel of our crucified and risen savior the covenant fulfillment the blessings of abraham ours simply through faith help us lord to believe it and help our unbelief. Help us, Lord, to live this out, not least in our parenting. We pray for the salvation of our children, young and old. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would save them. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would spread the blessings of Abraham among the nations more and more, in part through us, but all of your doing, no doubt, for your glory. We pray in your name. Amen. Let us stand to respond now in faith and sing out as children of the promise.
That's it, believers. That's, those are our marching orders. That's what God's called us to do. Walk by faith, not by sight. Stand on the promises. Keep our eyes on Jesus until he comes back again. Amen? Amen. Amen. If you would, take a seat for just a minute as we wrap things up. I want to say to you that if you're not yet a Christian and your head's spinning from some of the details we talked about today. I lost you many times through. You fell asleep three times. That's fine. You, you can hear just what I'm about to say and become a Christian just from hearing this and believing this and receiving this. That Jesus died in your place to take the punishment of your sins that you deserve. He fully obeyed God as God called you to do, but didn't. And he took the punishment upon the cross in your place. And if you simply call out to him and ask him for the gift of salvation that he worked for you, he'll give it to you freely. And he'll do it today. So we pray, and we have prayed, and we will pray for you, even if we don't know, know you yet by name. We will pray that God gives you that faith and you call out to him, whether today or sometime soon. Let us know how we can help. Uh, I'll be up front and others will be as well after the service. And we want to meet you, greet you, uh, or pray with you, or answer any questions you might have about this Jesus after our service. Uh, at our members meeting this past Wednesday, we had 12 new members added to our numbers. Uh, we've got pictures of these people up there. Not names, but Ron, uh, as you know, Pastor Ron sends out a Tuesday email every week. Uh, if you're not signed up for that, you want to be signed up for it if you're around here and active and involved, especially if you're a member. 
And, uh, and in that email, you'll get the names and these people, uh, and you'll get to meet them a little bit if you haven't, at least over that email. And we'd encourage you as well to, um, to look for these people in days ahead if you don't yet know them, and uh, introduce yourself and welcome them to our fold, at least officially. We should do an alternate slide with masks on that this is what they look like with masks. <laughs> but we don't have that handy. I just thought of that. All right. Let me close with the last verse of Galatians. Paul's final and very brief word to the Galatian church. We dismiss with this. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed.